This is a sermon podcast of the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcbalone.org. Let's take our Bibles, Esther chapter 3 tonight. Esther chapter 3. Um, <clears throat> learning to trust God's unseen hand, I have been giving you rules that you can use to live by and to uh, use as as we you know, wait for the Lord in those times where we may not have His an explicit direction yet, maybe by reading His Word and just our, our prayer and, and, and our spiritual disciplines, He's, you know, we've got a decision to make or we've got a path that we, we think we may need to take. And, but until he, we have that affirmation, what are, how do we face life? And um, the, the, the rules that I've been giving you, they seem a little varied, but, but so is life. I, I mean, life is varied. And and so uh, t- tonight's rule is, is you know, uh, kind of following some of the same lines as, as the previous ones. But we're starting to, to approach the heart issue or the heart of the issue in the book of Esther. Let me go ahead and give you the rule. We're going to look at the text and I'm going to give you some supporting statements and observations from the text to support this rule. Here, here's the rule. Standing with the Lord requires a strong and unwavering faith in God. Always. Standing with the Lord requires a strong and unwavering faith in God. Tonight, we will examine Mordecai's strong and unwavering faith in God in a political context. Now, I want to underscore that that this is a this is a political text, and and um, I, I'm going to teach the text, and I'm going to say what you know the, the text is meaning. But when we get to the implications, uh, I think you and I, at least I was, I I was a little surprised when I kind of stood back from the word and and kind of looked at what Mordecai did relative to the way Jesus lived, and I'm going to kind of tie those two. Later on, um, and and you said, Pastor, you're being kind of uh, obtuse here and, and, and unclear. That, I, I promise you, I, I will make sense as I go along. But this is a political context. This is a political text. And whether it's political, whether it's social, whether it's uh, in our employment, sometimes standing with the Lord will require a strong and absolutely unwavering faith in God. There are three big movements in chapter three. We're going to look at the entire chapter uh, tonight. And uh, we're going to begin with verse one and look at verses one through six to begin with. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman. 
in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. This event takes place, one commentator says, it takes place about four years or so, give or take, after the events of chapter 2. Um, yes, there's, there's some ways you can kind of date this stuff, but, um, uh, but just let it be known that, that what we see here is it's just you know, removed from the end of chapter 2. Remember that plot of Mordecai? He discovered it from those two eunuchs. So exactly how much time, we don't know, but there was enough time for us now to be introduced rather surprisingly to the villain of the story. We have no indication of how he got to where he has gotten. All we read about in verse 1 is that now there's this Haman, the Agagite. Now, we do not know much about the process of him being promoted and him winning the favor of King Xerxes. But by virtue of his name, we know a lot about who Haman was. If you notice the word Agagite, you see the word Agagite. Um, <clears throat> Derek Prime in his commentary writes, he says, This was a deliberate attempt to classify Haman as the modern incarnation of Agag, an ancient enemy of the Jews. If you remember Agag... Uh, remember, Agag was actually the Amalekite king whom the prophet Samuel ordered King Saul to utterly destroy King Agag and that whole group of people. Do you remember that? First Samuel 15. What did Saul do? Do you remember what Saul did? That's right. He spared animals. He spared the king. Remember Samuel's response? Well, why did Saul do that? He thought he was doing God a favor. And Samuel came in, you remember, he came in, he says, What is this bleeding of you know of these and these lambs in my ears? What am I, you know, what is this that I'm hearing? Did I not tell you? Were you not instructed by the Lord to kill them all? He said, behold, for, uh, uh, um, 1 Samuel 15, round about verse 3, to obey is better than sacrifice. I don't care what you, you could have planned to sacrifice all those animals to the Lord. He didn't want that. He wanted you to obey him. And so Haman, because the king was spared initially and therefore a season, right? There are now some descendants, Haman being one of them, an enemy of the Jews. We see also the corruption of his character. You give someone just a smidgen of power, they get, they get bloodthirsty. And we see that he took his newfound power and fame, he took it to a whole new level. He's gonna, uh, uh, Xerxes is going to let him take it to an extreme level here in, in just a moment. 
but we're immediately introduced to Mordecai's resistance. Mordecai, now this is a pure and, and good biblical example of nonviolent resistance. This is a political maneuver. You have the king, a political power, exalting Haman. He advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So this was Haman's second in command in just a few moments, you're going to see that he's going to be made equal in command. And so he demands that people bow down and worship him. Uh, Mordecai says, no, dude, a lot of things I will do in this Persian kingdom, I will not bow down to you. Long story short, it was made known to Haman that this guy, Mordecai, was a Jew. You mix an Agagite and Jew, what do you think you're going to have? Trouble. T-R-O-U-B-L-E. That's why you get to verse 6, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Haman says, ha, I've got these people right where I need them and want them. They tried to destroy my people and my culture and my heritage. Now it's my turn to do the same. But also I want you to know that it was Mordecai's identity that determined his actions. Mordecai was a faithful worshiper of Yahweh. He didn't bend that knee easily. Not in terms of worship. Remember that. Mordecai's identity determined his actions. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, not the car, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, they cast pure. That is, they cast lots. Before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month to the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to the king Xerxes, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they don't keep the king's laws. So that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it would please you, Mr. King, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. Wipe them out. And if you do that, there in verse 9, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business so that they may be put in the king's treasuries. Money talks, doesn't it? So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Mm. So Mordecai, in looking to be destroyed by Haman, he says, well, what we're going to do, we're going to cast lots. I'm not sure how familiar you are with casting of lots. I will describe the process to you, at least in the Persian sense, which is borrowed from the Old Testament sense, uh, which is kind of carried over to the Roman way kind of, sort of, 
when the Roman centurions were casting lots for the garments of Jesus. What it was, it's, it's really about what you can imagine. Um, anybody play Yahtzee? It's, it's a version of Yahtzee. They would take, uh, in this case, stones that had markings, put them in a container, shake them up, roll them out. And they would do this. They would keep doing this. And, and, and they were looking for patterns. They were looking for things. Monday night in the Iowa caucus, how many of you heard that they were actually determining um, a decision in the caucus on the flip of a coin? Do y'all know that? That's essential. And they kept flipping the coin to determine. And we keep flipping it, okay? Because they're, deter- they're trying to figure a series of events. They're trying to determine a series of, of the outcome. Well, that's what the casting of lots was. And that's why the text was saying day after day. Now, also in the Persian sense, it would not have been, um, it would not have been uncommon for them to have been uh, reciting some incantations to uh, elicit the favor of their gods, as it were, as they were casting lots. You see, probably very, you know, just a real dark and, and mystical uh, uh, experience, I'm sure, if we were looking in on it. So that's what they were doing. It was very common in the practice in the east. It was actually used by the Israelites uh, when they settled in the land of Canaan. You know, the psalmist uh, 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 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is of the Lord. Doesn't matter what, how you think you roll the dice. Lord even decides that. In other words, there's no such thing as chance. Now, I heard a preacher say that one time, and I agree with it, and so do you. If there's no such thing as chance, then there's no such thing as a true game of chance, right? So, okay, there's no such thing as a game of chance. Does that mean it's okay to do it then? But no, it's, it's not like that. Furthermore, um, Haman was very devious in revealing the identity of those whom he wished annihilation. You see that he carefully hid the ethnicity of the people to uh, Xerxes. Why? Because I believe Xerxes could have had, at this time, Jewish sympathies. It is possible. He most certainly, Xerxes was not an idiot. He would have definitely known that there were Jews in the midst of his empire. But if you think about it, and, 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 and when you read world history, they weren't causing any disturbance. But Haman says, well, listen, they, they, don't, they honor a different God. This is where it's going to get real for us, even as Americans. Okay? It doesn't matter the political system. We have a sovereign God that we serve even before we have a sovereign nation. That's the position Mordecai was in. But one also dictated the other. Remember last week I I shared with you Mordecai's worship of Yahweh meant that he was going to show favor, favor to those who may would wish them or be a part of their harm to a potential enemy, which was Xerxes. Xerxes was not a worshiper of Yahweh. He, didn't, he was, you know. And so those two are, are related. And I'm going to get into that in just a moment. 
But then he gave uh, Haman attached a dollar figure to it. And you said, well, okay, well, 10,000 talents of silver, big, big deal. I, I broke it down to modern-day dollars. A talent is about 34 kilograms. One talent. A kilogram of silver, as of yesterday, was worth $460.72. When you do the multiplication, Haman said to King Xerxes, Xerxes, I'm going to deposit $156 million into your treasury. By the way, that amount roughly was about two-thirds the annual revenue of the Persian Empire under King Darius. Where did he get the money? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, but he had it. Same way terrorists today. You know, where did he get that money? Well, they find ways to get it. Xerxes says, okay, I'll let you do it. Matter of fact, I'm going to give you the symbol of my authority. And the Bible says he took off his signet ring. Uh, if you look there in, in verse, um, in, in, in um, verse 10, so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite. Just curious, I, I'm pretty sure I already know the answer. Does anyone have a variant reading there in verse 10 other than the word ring? Okay, all right. It, it shouldn't. Hebrew is quite clear. But I am going to I'm going to show you a picture because in the in, in Persian uh, history, a signet was, yes, a ring. But if you remember in the last part of of Second Chronicles, King Cyrus was the Persian ruler. This was his signet. It's called the cylinder of Cyrus. This is a picture of it now. The picture that you see on this piece of paper is actually about 100%, you know, to standard. It, it was about eight inches long and about four inches um, wide. And what he would do, so it was, in other words, it was small enough that he could carry it with him. And what they would do was, like a signet ring was pressed, they would take the cylinder and roll it and to make an impression on whatever they wanted to make an impression of. Now, that's, that's a cylinder, and that was his. So this, is, this is biblical archaeology right here. But the symbolism here was that of authority. It's as if Obama says to me, all right, uh, uh, Dr. Woodard, we're going to send you to make some speeches and we're going to give you a podium. But on the podium, we are going to hang the seal of the presidency of the United States and you will stand behind it on my behalf. Wow. Wow. It's a big deal. And you do not wield that authority loosely. But Xerxes did. Verse 12. It was. No, 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 no. This did not. This, this was a, 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 a actual solid cylinder. Yes, it was. It was a ring. I don't have a picture. We don't have a biblical archaeology picture of a ring from the Persian Empire, but I have a cylinder. I just want to show you the picture of what it was like to give that power to someone else. Do you follow me? 
He had a ring, and it meant the same thing as this. But Cyrus had a cylinder. Okay. All right. <clears throat> or, that, excuse me, uh, a better way to say it, that cylinder belonged to Cyrus in the same capacity. So in verse 12, the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month uh, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded. It was written and uh, it was written in, in the name of King Xerxes. It was sealed with the king's signet ring. That's at the bottom of verse 12, verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill and to annihilate all Jews, young, old, women, children in one day. And one day there's going to be a mass murder, a genocide. This is not something that is just ancient. This is also modern. If you're reading world news, and you should, and you better be reading world news, especially in Boko Haram. And the atrocities that are going to happen. I mean, even know that just the other day they slaughtered dozens and dozens of children, burned them alive in Boko Haram. Verse 15, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. What a statement. Commentator H.D.M. Spence describes the courier system this way. The Persian system of posts, in, uh, as described by Xenophon, who was a uh, writer, he says they were stables for horses that were erected along various lines of route, a postal route. And at such a distance one from another as a horse can accomplish in a day. There was a postmaster at each. The stables had a number of horses and also grooms. The, the, the men would come. They'd rest. Another guy would mount another horse and keep trucking. And that's how word got out. It was a very efficient system. It was the most rapid of all methods of conveyance by land. But the most horrifying sight is in the very last verse. The king and Haman sat down to drink. You've got two old pals who just issued the edict of the annihilation of an entire race of people. And now they're going to the pub for brewski. As if nothing happened. They're just carrying on about their day. All because of Mordecai, by the way. Mordecai had not knelt. No, of Haman, I don't know what events would have transpired, but that's why standing for the Lord is going to take some guts. It will take a backbone. Some of you may not be faced with difficult circumstances by the time you die. But I am almost certain guaranteed that younger generations, maybe even my own, may be faced, culturally speaking, with a situation that may not be far removed from Haman, uh, from Mordecai's. This world is becoming more and more unfriendly to the gospel. Our country is getting more and more unfriendly to the gospel. And we are seeing all manners of persecution on the rise. Yes. Well, even Jacksonville right now is, is discussing how it's affecting pastors because of this uh, 
this proposal about the uh, change to the uh, how they address homosexuals. Yes. 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 So, I, so you're yes. right. I think what you're fixing to see is that Cliff Hansen is concerned. Yes. They're concerned that it's going yeah. to have a direct effect. Yeah. yeah. Once they pass this, uh, these these new laws about rights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I will. I will make sure, to the best of my strength, if you would allow me to, if you didn't kill me beforehand, but I will make sure that our church doors are chained shut before we are forced to accept things against the Scriptures. Amen. Um, We'll go find find somewhere else to worship. So let's talk about standing with the Lord, and let's talk about it in context of of the political arena um, and government, because this is kind of the way that it's been presented to us. I'm going to kind of keep the context um, intact. And so let's just talk about standing with the Lord, especially in view of government. Number one, standing with the Lord requires us to know and express our identity in Christ. That's exactly what Mordecai did. And it was the basis for his behavior. There will be some things that will be off limits to the United States government. If we stand for the Lord properly, there will be some things that we will not be able to shake hands with them on. There are, there are, you know, you know how folks in the South can, uh, uh, you know, make an idol out of the Republican Party, but I don't care what letter you have behind your name. Some folks can be wolves in sheep's clothing. And, and just because you may be, you know, you, you are sympathetic to some of my views, I, it doesn't mean I have to agree with everything. I'm going to say no to some things, disagree with some things. My identity requires me to. Mordecai saw no distinction between his, listen, between his existence and his identity. His identity ruled his existence. We too must be just as resolved that our identity as the bride of Christ will be our first and foremost concept of identity. It directs me, not the other way around. Dr. Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary, recently said, if you can't tell the difference between the church and the culture, it isn't that the church has been victorious over the culture. It's because the culture has been victorious over the church. I pray that one day that reverse will be true. I would, it is my prayer that one day we could see almost no distinction or difference between the church and the culture because the church has been victorious over the culture. That would be wonderful. But let me ask you this. Thus far, what has your identity cost you? Has your identity cost you anything in your life? Has it cost you relationships? Damage to relationships? Has it, has it, how has it directed you thus far? I believe we've been playing it way too safe, perhaps. But also keep in mind that we are entering into a season, perhaps, that's the best way to describe it, that we've not yet really entered into. Because you see, before, we had the law on our side. Dr. MacArthur, John MacArthur said that we talk about terrorism, Middle Eastern terrorism, whatever. That's fine. There's a place for that. But we forget that the two greatest terrorist attacks. These are his words, not mine, but I agree with them. The two greatest terrorist attacks came not from 
Arab peoples, but from our Supreme Court. One, legalization of abortion. Excuse me, the allowance of abortion. Number two, the Supreme Court's declarations and sidings with the homosexual agenda, which translates into the destruction and the redefining of of American uh, excuse me, of biblical marriage. Muddy waters, to be sure. Number two, standing with the Lord requires us to be included in His suffering. Okay? I want you to understand that if we stand with the Lord properly, as we should, it should not surprise us that we are going to suffer, but that it is His will that we are to suffer. That was Jesus' understanding of following him. Let me explain. A central tenet of discipleship is taking up your cross. He said that. If any one man wants to follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. We have a very narrow view of the cross, do we not? But could you imagine the Roman the Jew living in this Roman Empire hearing that? Think about their context. Their context meant everything to what Jesus said. We don't have crucifixions anymore. That's why, that's why we struggled in understanding this. You see, the world's way, it, the cross in the Roman times was the world's way of rejecting that person. What is now worn as an accessory or a piece of jewelry or clothing was not seen that way to the first century Palestinian Jew and should not be seen that way to us either. Christ's words indicate as much in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. The cross was a symbol of cultural rejection, guilt, and shame. That's why the Bible said, cursed is the one who hangs from a tree. Even the Bible recognized that culturally, that was like the worst of the worst. It was, and I don't mean, I'm not being sacrilegious. I'm not trying to be funny, but it's like someone shooting you and then cutting you into pieces after you already did and then burning you and then grinding your ashes into a powder and then scattering them wherever. I mean, it was, the, the, the cross was a despicable concept. Jesus says, you're going to follow me. You must identify yourself as that person who's been rejected. It sounds like, well, God, he sounds like we need to just lose everything. Well, funny thing. He said, if anyone would lose his life for my sake, we'll find it. That's exactly, that's how Jesus defined salvation. We've relegated it to a sinner's prayer, walking an aisle, signing a card for too long. The cross is Jesus's participation and inauguration 
that we should suffer and we are called to suffer just as he has suffered on our behalf. So let me implore you to guard the theological and doctrinal nature and meaning and significance of the cross. We have mingled it much to our disdain with other things. Missiologist Christopher N.T. Wright in his book had a little parenthetical statement, a little paragraph, and I'm going to read it to you. I didn't write it. He wrote it. But I think it means something. He says, I wish now that I had taken it to the checkout, paid for it, and then stamped on it before leaving the Christian bookstore of the Christian church where I saw it. It horrified me as a piece of blasphemous syncretism. I'll I'll talk about that in just a moment. It was a small statue of a cross wrapped in an American flag. Now he writes, and 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 these are very valid questions. What were its manufacturers thinking? What message was any purchaser supposed to read into it? It seemed to say, well, you can have the cross of Jesus and all your sins forgiven and have it wrapped in patriotism too. You don't even need to think that the cross might cut across everything your patriotism symbolizes or that at the cross was where patriots of Jesus' day put traitors and terrorists. Or was it saying Jesus died for Americans? That's true, but did he not also die for the people of all nations, of all flags, and none? In other words, even the most charitable interpretation, that's what it was. It was a charitable interpretation of such symbolism was very confusing. That's called syncretism. It is the mixing of worship of the living God of the Bible with other loves and loyalties, and it's equating them as the same. It's not something that happens only in foreign countries with other religions. You see, this is unique because the Bible in the same breath is anti-government and pro-government. Did you know that? And let me kind of break it down for you. It was anti-government in the fact that Jesus was the terrorist, in a sense. That was why he was questioned. And Jesus says, remember, he was standing before the authority. He says, well, my kingdom is not of this world. So you don't have anything to worry about from me. This isn't my home. My, my kingdom is something much different. The powers that be didn't interpret it that way. They branded him a terrorist. But Jesus also commanded us to seek first his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom. Well, what does that mean for us to, how do we live as, 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 as citizens of any country? Paul said explicitly, Romans 13, you honor and obey them. They are authorities allowed by God, instituted by God. So in the same breath, while the scripture says, yes, honor the government, you have a first loyalty and it's not a flag, but a cross. Does anybody think that Strange and hard to kind of wrap your mind around? I admit that I do. 
Because I will tell you, I serve God first, unreservedly, in any cultural context in this world. But I am also thankful that I am standing on American soil. And I will fight and I will kill if my country asks for me to do that. It's a very strange dichotomy. It was why Mordecai, in one text, is honoring Xerxes, protecting Xerxes. That he says, wait a minute, listen, guys, my patriotism for the Persian Empire only goes so far. I will not kneel for you. And so when we see these images of, of American patriotism wrapped up in Christianity, we must, I believe Christopher N.T. Wright had, brings up very valid points. We must be careful how these two are displayed. And shall I say, I think our money says it best, one nation under God. That's our position. We're under him. Not equal to and not above, most certainly not above, but not even equal to. We are under him. I believe that freedom is essential to the, the, the whole tenet of redemption and being set free from our sin. I believe that freedom is, is a theological issue. But if, we're going to, but if any country deserves and desires proper freedom, it must only give that freedom as interpreted and, and as defined as Scripture defines it. And not to confuse the two. And because we have this crazy dichotomy of being pro-government and anti-government, as Mordecai was, we will be sure to face and have to endure suffering. That's why, again, this is a radical statement, we must be careful how we pray for persecution. Did I pray for Pastor Saeed to be released from prison? You bet I did but not one day sooner than what was the Lord's will. Because what a lot of folks don't realize is that the growth of the church has exploded as a result of people like Pastor Saeed being in prison. Kind of think of Paul and Silas. That's a very valuable place to do the Lord's work. And so while he suffered, absolutely. And while we don't like suffering, we do not. While we would want him and, and other Christians likewise to be released, yes, we do. But God, let's let your holy and sovereign will be accomplished first. God, give them the strength and the endurance and the faith and the hope and everything. But Father, give us the same thing. Let us be strong in the face of suffering that we would stand strong. And then finally, number three, standing with the Lord will be accompanied by perilous times in which we do not know the outcome. Verse 15, you've got... Haman and Xerxes enjoying their brewskis. But notice the latter part of that verse. The city of Susa was thrown into confusion. They did not know how the story would end. We do. You could read the rest of Esther tonight. They didn't have that luxury. And you better bet they were extremely worried 
and anxious and they had every right to be. All they knew was on a certain day, they had a death warrant. And they were not going to escape it. Real time walking with Jesus requires a real time faith. This was actually the nature of Christ's directive when he also said, pray this way, give us this day our daily bread. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. So, Lord, you take care of my needs today. I'm not even promised tomorrow. We will trust in you. This book, I'm telling you, for it not to have the name of God in it, he's all over it. Not only is he all over it, I believe we're getting some of the richest instructions on how we are to live a moral and obedient life to Jesus in very perilous times. I think this book just oozes with with truth and, and, and gold that we can mine for that very purpose and for that topic. So I pray that we will stand with the Lord. I pray that you, when, if, when and if those times come, we stand with him. But it will require a strong and unwavering faith in God. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcboulogne.org. Thank you.